This is History West Midlands. The 400-year-long Roman occupation of Britain transformed the country's economic and social life as people from across the Roman Empire brought with them new ideas, products and amenities such as public bathhouses. It also left an indelible mark on the landscape in the form of cities, forts and settlements. Some of these survive today as modern towns and cities, whilst others fell into disuse and were lost until archaeologists began to uncover their history. One of the most important Roman cities to be rediscovered in this way was Roxeter, near modern-day Shrewsbury. First excavated in Victorian times, it is still revealing fresh secrets of Roman life and culture today. Roger White of the University of Birmingham has been studying the site at Roxeter for 40 years and believes it has a unique place in the development of modern Britain. In this programme, Britain's Pompeii, Roger discusses why the site at Roxeter is so important to our understanding of Roman town life in Britain. Visitors to Roxeter Roman City in the heart of Shropshire can be forgiven for being baffled by the claim that the site is anything like the significance of Pompeii, when all they can see are fields and an area of ruins dominated by a single freestanding wall. Despite this, the analogy is valid. Both cities are roughly the same size. Roxeter is 78 hectares, or 180 acres. Pompeii is 69 hectares, or 170 acres, although their population sizes must have been very different. Like Pompeii, Roxeter too is visible to archaeologists to study, but not in quite the same way. With Pompeii, the site has been buried under a thick layer of loose volcanic deposits. This has now largely been removed over much of the city making virtually the whole plan visible. At Roxeter, the town was abandoned and allowed to fall into natural decay, but archaeologists are still able to see the whole town because they can use modern technologies to see through the soil to the underlying buildings. This is possible only because the town was never occupied again, so we can see everything, unlike in most other Roman towns in Britain, which are deeply buried and very badly damaged by later activity. In one respect, however, Roxeter is better than Pompeii, and for that matter, those Roman towns in Britain, which have been completely erased by later buildings. In London, or Leicester for instance, it is virtually impossible to stand in the city and to visualise what the landscape of the city must have been like, and how the city related to the landscape around it. This has all been lost under a welter of concrete, tarmac and glass. In London, entire rivers such as the Walbrook or Fleet have been culverted and levelled out of existence. In Roxeter, it is possible to walk over the city and see how the site changes in form. You can appreciate that Roxeter sits on a gently sloping site, cut across in one part by a deep valley that then broadens out to flow down to the Severn, which forms the western side of the city. It is obvious when you stand on the river cliff here that the opposite bank is about three metres lower, so that when the Severn floods, as it does virtually every year, the water breaks out onto the fields opposite and does not endanger the town. When you stand at the highest point of the city, 
You can look around on a clear day and count 13 different hill forts visible from the centre of the town. From the nearest at the Reekin to the distant Brython Hills near Welshpool, or Kerkaradoc by Church Stretton. You can look across the Severn Plain and see the hills of Wales in Montgomeryshire. Such a view, and the control of the ford across the Severn at Rockster itself, make it obvious why this site was attractive to the Roman army when they first established their fortress. It is evident that they were skilful readers of landscape and were experienced at picking a site that most closely met their requirements. The 20-hectare fortress that was built in around AD 57 on the site just described seems to have been a typical establishment with a well-known playing card shape of a rectangle with rounded corners. Ironically, the evidence for most of its buildings lies deeply buried and invisible beneath the later Roman town. But we can fortunately predict the outlines from the few clues we have both from excavation and from aerial photography and geophysics. The fortress was first home to the 14th Legion, which was one of the legions involved in the conquest. They had moved to Britain from their then base at Mainz, but from the few tombstones of the soldiers we have, the men themselves came from northern Italy. They were replaced, after about 20 years, by the 20th Legion, before the fortress was eventually dismantled in the 90s. By this time, a civilian settlement had been established, whose population was most likely formed of a mixture of local people, incomers from elsewhere in Britain, and a number of retired soldiers, veterans who had perhaps married local women and decided to stay. This civilian settlement lay to the west and south of the fortress, occupying the area around the busy ford and a space between the fortress and the river. The departure of the legions and the levelling of the fortress's defences meant that the emerging town was now free to be handed back to the tribe, the Civitas Cornoviorum. Using the street plan of the fortress and the buildings that survived in it, the new town was laid out by extending the lines of streets out into blocks surveyed in the same fashion as the fortress itself, which suggests that the town was planned by its veteran soldiers who would have been used to laying out extensive street grids. The town was expanded to roughly 80 hectares, curiously extending across the major stream, the Bell Brook, which still lies in a deep valley on the northeast part of the town. The size was ambitious. Rockster is the fourth largest town in Roman Britain by area, and the native authorities running it decided to invest in its future by constructing its civic centre. It took some time to build the revenues to make this possible, but construction started in the 120s, and may even have started during the time of the visit to Britain of the then Emperor Hadrian in 122. It has even been speculated that Hadrian himself visited Rockster and encouraged the construction of the city centre, but there is absolutely no proof of this, and it is perhaps more likely that he spent his time surveying and encouraging the progress on building Hadrian's Wall. Ordinarily, the civic buildings that occupied the centre of a Roman town would comprise a forum, a bathhouse and a temple. Of the last of these, we can say virtually nothing, as it most likely lies beneath the Victorian farm buildings at the crossroads lying at the centre of the site. The Forum was a market square, enclosed within a portico, the far side of which was closed by a huge basilican hall, a building with a nave and aisles on either side, so that it resembled the plan of a large church. Rooms were provided along the back wall of the hall. This hall functioned as a place to dispense justice, on the tribunal at one end of the hall, and was where the offices of the town council were located, including a debating chamber, 
a shrine and a treasury. The portico around the market square had shops at the front and there will have been stalls in the square on market days. Rox's Forum lay on the west side of the main street, Watling Street, running north-south through the centre of the new town. On the other side of the road was a town bathhouse, the most thoroughly investigated building in the town, and one that is still visible to the public. The ruins of the bathhouse are the only complete public bathhouse visible in Britain. Dominating the ruins is a freestanding wall, the old work, part of the south wall of another large basilica. It survives to roof height and gives some idea of the massive size of these buildings, since the basilica's main roof was two and a half times the height of the old work, about 20 metres. A large double doorway in the old work leads into the first room of the baths, the unheated room. Ahead lie rows of tile pillars that once supported the floors of the two rooms, the warm and hot rooms. To the left and right of the unheated room, two flanking suites of rooms can be seen that were once symmetrical. These are the hot, dry heat baths, like a modern sauna, as opposed to the main suite, which had a hot, humid atmosphere, like a modern Turkish baths. Beyond the baths and its shallow external plunge pool lay a square building constructed around a courtyard and with many small, equally sized rooms. This was probably a mekelem, a specialised market hall. Close by are two square rooms with a standing for a central pillar, supporting a vaulted roof. These were probably hot food shops selling snacks to those visiting the baths. Behind these, and close to the bars, was the public latrine, made obvious by its deep sewer trench. As can be guessed from these ancillary rooms, the bars was more than just about bathing. It was a place to see and be seen. The wealthier citizens of the town would parade with their servants at the bars from their own townhouses, conscious of being observed doing so. And their servants could then order the ingredients for the evening meal in the market hall while their owners bathed. Most people visiting the bathhouse, however, would probably visit alone, for they were open to all classes, although only the wealthy probably had the liberty to bathe at the most optimum time in the early afternoon. Those visiting the bars alone were, of course, vulnerable to theft, since they had no one to guard their clothes unless they paid someone to do so. We can see the consequences of this at Bath, where among the many curse tablets dedicated to the goddess Sulis Minerva, the eponymous deity of the hot springs at Bath, was the following. Doclianus of Bruceris to the most holy goddess Sulis. I curse him who has stolen my hooded cloak, whether man or woman, whether slave or free, that the goddess Sulis inflict death upon him, and not allow him sleep or children now and in the future, until he has brought my hooded cloak to the temple of her divinity. The relatively low value of the item stolen tells us that this was a garment precious to him, but also reflects Doculanus's natural anger and frustration at losing something he could ill afford to replace, a relaxing and pleasurable trip to the baths ruined. What can we learn to the people who lived in Rockster and used these grand public buildings? While our houses still lie buried, we can see their outlines on the geophysical surveys, sometimes in very good detail. During dry summers, we can also sometimes see the buildings on the surface as parch marks caused by the grass on top of the walls drying out and yellowing quicker than the rooms which, being more deeply buried, retain more moisture longer. The clarity with which these buildings can be seen suggests strongly 
that the walls are made in stone, up to a height of only half a metre or a metre. The walls that then rose above were probably of timber, with mud brick infill, or simply of mud brick or rammed earth. Such walls are perfectly strong enough for a building, so long as the wall does not rest directly on the earth, and the roof is effective at keeping the weather at bay. This is the same building type that has been recreated in the centre of the site, and its size and height give a good indication of what a small townhouse in Roxton would look like. The largest buildings seen in a town lie on the western side, and some of these have more than 30 rooms, although it is unknown if they were in single occupancy. Further out, towards where the town's defences lay, the buildings are likely to have been made more simply, out of organic materials, since we can no longer clearly see their plans, although it is evident that people were still using these areas. The relatively spartan furnishing in the rooms of the recreated townhouse are accurate in depicting the simple interiors of these houses. Only those rooms that would have been used by visitors, as well as the house owner's family, will have been more lavishly decorated. Otherwise, walls would simply have been lime-washed. Heating was provided by braziers, rather than a fireplace or hearth. When it comes to what people wore and what they looked like, we have a much better idea, since the site is rich in finds of all kinds of objects that would have been used and worn by the townspeople. From the many coins on site, people would have been aware of the fashions of the time, such as whether to wear a beard or not, or how to model your hair to resemble that of the current empress. We know from finding many hairpins at Rockster, finished and unfinished, that there was a trade in making and selling hairpins, as there was for the many and varied shapes of metal safety pin brooches used commonly by men and women during the first two centuries of the town's life. Later on, perhaps reflecting Christian concerns about appearance, women had fewer hairpins, perhaps suggesting they wore a veil or a headscarf. Similarly, brooches fell out of fashion, perhaps as people wore native costume that didn't need fastening. Finger rings and bracelets were also popular, and the latter especially were made from a wide variety of materials. Bone, jet, shale and glass examples have all been found. Finger rings might carry intricately carved gems called intaglios, which could be used to seal letters or bags of money with wax. Of the clothes that people wore, we have little solid evidence, but we have lots of spindle walls, so spinning and weaving of cloth will have been common and it is likely that linen and wool provided most of the clothes that were worn. Much of the produce I've mentioned could be bought in the marketplaces and shops of the town, alongside pottery which was produced locally, simple red or grey wares to store food in the kitchen. Recent studies suggest that some of these jars were used to hold mead, while others have limescale, suggesting that, like kettles, they were used to boil water. More exotic pottery was brought to the town from elsewhere in Britain, such as drinking cups made in the Neen Valley kilns near Peterborough, or from northern Gaul. But the most common imported pottery was the so-called Samian ware, a glossy red ware produced in southern and central Gaul. This could be plain or decorated with figures and other decorative stamps in attractive designs. So much of this ware was imported that virtually every Roman site in Britain produces some of it. More exotic, perhaps, but also imported in some quantity, was Roman glass, made around cologne in the shape of delicate cups and flasks through to thick-walled bottles intended for storage of liquids and dry goods in the kitchen. Also in the kitchen could be found the large pottery containers known as amphorae that could hold a variety of exotic products, 
including olive oil, wine, dates, and fish sauce, or garum. The consumption of such products suggests that many had adopted their diet to Roman cuisine, using Roman grinding bowls, or mortaria, to process the food, which was then served on a variety of local and imported pottery. While such a diet was not for everyone, the fact that some chose to live like this is a significant mark of people's sense of Roman identity. The comfort and security of the High Roman period came to a gradual end during the late 3rd century. As the empire buckled under internal and external pressures, Britain came to be seen as increasingly peripheral, and imperial interest waned. Towns like Roxeter struggled to survive as the economy shrank, and with no state intervention to rescue them, it just couldn't survive in the long term. The reason for that lies, paradoxically, in the location of the city. Its very openness made it too vulnerable to be a medieval town. So when urban life was re-established in the Anglo-Saxon period, they instead settled at the much more defensible site at Shrewsbury. What one gets a sense of when looking through the artefacts of this long-abandoned town is just how conventionally Roman it was, which is something of a surprise when you look out into the countryside around it and see just how little of this rich material culture penetrated into the Shropshire countryside. Those who lived in the town undoubtedly made a choice to live a particular lifestyle, one with comforts and amenities which were reflected in their houses and the goods that they used. For relatively ordinary people, the quality of living provided in places like Rockster would not be bettered in the West Midlands until the Georgian or even Victorian era. In that sense, you could say that despite the distance in time between the Romans and us, they have much more in common with us than the people in the Middle Ages. We would have felt much more at home with the Roman lifestyle than in, say, medieval Shrewsbury. To find out more about the unique history of Roxeter, visit the website www.english-heritage.org.uk and search for Roxeter Roman City. Or read Roger White and Philip Barker's book, Roxeter, Life and Death of a Roman City, which is available from Amazon and other bookstores. You can listen to the other podcasts in the Romans in the West Midlands series and find many more fascinating films, podcasts and articles at the History West Midlands website, www.historywm.com. <laughs>